Hey everybody, and welcome back to this bonus episode of the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford. And I'm Peter Glassford. So today we have our dear, dear friend, Scott Kelly, on with us. He's the mechanic for the Scott Three Rocks mountain bike team, but in addition to that, he also owns a bike shop, does tons of high-end bike stuff, and is just pretty much involved in every part of Canadian cycling that I think you can be a part of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's. I've known him not since 1984. We were both born in 1984, um, but he's he's from the same area. And yeah, I don't know. We started. He started riding pretty much at the same time. And then he he was smarter and got out of it and more into the organization and business side of things sooner. So yeah, he's he started with the national team and then sort of got his. He has his own bike sort of boutique store. It's focused on service. It's in Dundas, Ontario. They do so. He's into fitting. He's into. He's a very good mechanic. He's done that for national team. Again, he does it privately with the Three Rocks uh, mountain bike team. Um, and man, does he know how to travel well? Because he, he spends yeah. so much time on the road. He's so. basically like what is that guy's name? The actor George Clooney. George, he's basically George Clooney of cycling. <laughs> Scott Kelly is the George Clooney of cycling. I have often said that, even before we made that connection. Yeah, yeah. He's he definitely gets things done. I think that's what George Clooney did in that in that movie, actually. And that's what I'm. I think he so, actually fired people, though. Yeah, I'm so impressed with Scott because yeah, no matter what you need done or what you know favor or question you're asking, he's got an answer. He's just like the most. I don't know, set up dude that I know. Yeah. I mean, he works hard. He's, he's good. Yes. He's got a lot of, again, travel is something that he's really good at. So we talk about, you know, where his, what his tips are for traveling, how you travel really well. Um, we talk about sort of mistakes he sees because he's at a lot of races, right? And so I always like talking, if you can ever get a mechanic actually talking to you and honest mm-hmm. with you about what you're, what you're screwing up. They, Game changer. Because they see you and they watch you the entire time. And a lot of times they're pretty, like, I guess... I don't know if humble is the right word, but they just, they're not going to tell you. They don't want to interfere with what you're doing. But honestly, mechanics and managers and that, those people, like those are the people you want to find out what you're screwing up. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, he talks about what he sees athletes, you know, messing up a lot of time. We talk, I think we talk about some long-term development with athletes and juniors. We talk about running some business stuff. We talk about, again, traveling, some tips. Um, yeah, the couple of my favorite takeaways, and I'm totally going to throw some spoilers in, so deal with it. Uh, one thing he says that kind of really struck me was when we asked him, like, how do you handle all this travel? He was just so kind of nonchalant about it. He's like, oh, you just need to embrace the fact that you're traveling. And it was like this weird light bulb moment for me because sometimes I get super grumpy about how much we travel. And then I'm like, oh, right, we, we bring this on ourselves. Like we opt to travel for what we want to do yeah it's a choice and so he his point was that you know if you're a mechanic or you're an athlete like you do have another choice you, you know you could race locally or not race you could just ride you could get a nine to five and ride your bike and it's you know a lot lower stress and probably a lot more money <laughs> probably more enjoyable so you know if you're a mechanic there's lots of bike shop and you know industry jobs you could get you know there's other jobs you could get so i mean embracing the the good sides of that right it's like any job it's not that glamorous but embracing that choice right and, and enjoying where you are for yes. the moment so. and as we have a overnight flight and a flight home in two weeks that involves a six-hour layover i'm really going to be repeating that in my head a lot i think in the next few weeks yeah 
the other thing we talked about is um, we were asking, because he works a lot with the national team now. So we asked him, you know, how he kind of gets to be a part of all of these different projects. And I love what he said about just taking the initiative and helping out where he can before he actually is getting these paid jobs. And I think so many people now just want to like go right to like, boom, I have the job. But Scott talked a lot about kind of paying your dues and... Yeah, paying your dudes, but also, you know, looking for things that need to be done and, yes. and just doing them, right? Like, he didn't necessarily get paid. It was outside of his his job, so to speak, his description to start, and then he did it. And I think that initiative, and I always like to say it's, I think it's attributed to Woody, Woody who? I don't know. But 90% of life is showing up. Uh, Apparently, it's not actually what he said. And Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know but anyhow, you're about. That's something I've always believed that, like, you just need to show up and be ready to work. But, you know, a lot of people just won't show up. Mm-hmm. And certainly, like, I remember in university, that was the case. People wouldn't show up for class. They wouldn't, you know, study for the exam. They wouldn't, you know, do a bit of studying every day. And, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the last note here is that he's also working with uh, the national team to send Canadian cyclocrossers, especially juniors and U23s, over for Worlds, and they are still fundraising for that. So if you listen to this and you're inspired, we'll have all the links and stuff in the yeah. show notes. And it's, it's seriously a bunch of awesome juniors and U23s. We've gotten to know most of the ones that could be going to Worlds. So really, if you're helping them out, you're doing a great thing for North American cyclocross. So, so. definitely yeah. consider... The Canadians are, are doing pretty good right now. So. Yeah. Yeah, we got a lot of juniors, actually, that are doing well. And Mike Vandenham's part of that group. Crushing it right yeah, now. he's doing really well. He's so. having an amazing season. I don't, know, I don't know if Michael Dick's going over or not, but Mega Lee's doing really well yeah. too this year. So I assume they're all part of that as well. So, yeah, I, I believe they have some sort of benefits to you for doing it too. But yeah. check it out. Definitely. All right. Enjoy Scott Kelly. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We're here today with one of my longtime friends and someone who I idolize, uh, Scott Kelly. <laughs> and uh, Scott's born in the same year, 1984, as me. We uh, started riding bikes on uh, pretty much the same day, I think, some sort of spring day, probably around, what, year 2000, 98, 97, I guess, probably 98, 97. Um, Scott raced for many years, um, and then he's slowly made a very polymath-like career in the cycling industry. He uh, wrenches. He's got his own bike shop in Dundas, Ontario. He has helped with developing the LTAD, the Long-Term Athlete Development Program, adding mechanics to that, which is my favorite part of it. Um, He has been wrenched for the national team. He's gone to the Olympics as a wrench. Um, He also is one of the most, like if you get lost in Europe, if you phone him, he'll get you home or wherever you need to go. Um, He's very good with documents. What else does what else does Scott Kelly do? What, what does Scott <laughs> Kelly not do? It's Peter? true. That's he's, the question. He's been on the the previous years the Scott Three Rocks mechanic. Yeah, he doesn't sleep. Uh, yeah, so you you have a lot going on. Welcome to the podcast. I think you're you're a very worthy consummate athlete, um, mm-hmm. but also you you support a lot of athletes. So our interest today in talking to Scott is to you know talk about some of the stuff he's observed as he's been at the Olympics, as he's been in the bike shop, he's been you know organizing trips around the world. Um, and try and glean out a little bit of stuff we can use uh, in our athletic endeavors. So, Scott, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Virtually coming in, I guess that is. But, um, yeah, so 1984, uh, to you know, you got started with sport, and then you started writing. Was it around 97? Um, I'm trying to, like, remember what it was. Like, I guess I would use probably more, like, grades or whatever. But uh, I guess in grade 7, grade 8, uh, started writing with some friends. And actually... Um, 
friends that were on like the cross country ski team at school and they kind of like rode bikes in the summer for fun um and for training and i kind of went out with them and they all had like pretty pretty awesome mountain bikes and I, i'm pretty sure i got it handed to me but i kind of just like found an interest in it and i remember being at the the bike show in toronto um buying uh buying a mountain bike and their uh, hardwood hills had um, like a booth set up and they had an advertisement for their development program so um talked to my mom and she thought that was all right so i was like oh you know i'm gonna sign up for this so i remember uh going out to the first uh kind of um club or whatever you want to call it team meeting at uh, an ontario cup in dagmar and uh you know riding around and you know with all these like there's probably five or six like guys on the team and then racing the next day and lasting like a lap like I, um, I finished the, like the lap and my back was like completely blown. And this is like, you know, bad for a 14 year old. Um, and, uh, the coach at the time, Steve Neal, uh, was like, yeah, you know, I, I was going to tell you that you needed to raise your saddle, but I thought it'd probably be better that you just learn for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That's where so, you, you became interested in bike fitting at that point. And <laughs> <laughs> no, not for very many years afterwards. I, like it was, it was a pretty quick progression because if you don't know anything about like, you know, riding or mountain biking like at that age when you're a cadet like you just learn so much so quickly and uh i was very proud of it. i finished that year i got the the most improved rider um for the uh the wednesday night series at hardwood hills which is probably the first and only thing i've ever won uh it's still on as the a wall. bike racer it's still on the wall <laughs> it's still on the wall yeah it is um but uh yeah that that was my uh my start to the sport so so your parents drove you to hardwood hills from orangeville so this is like Hour, like well over an hour yeah uh wednesdays saturdays and sundays my mom would uh drive me uh she'd get home early from work on wednesdays we'd get up there in time to kind of pre-ride and do the wednesday night race and then go up again on saturday and then go up again on sunday it wasn't always hardwood hills like you know if there was an ontario cup that weekend she'd drive it to like right. you know oxbridge or london or wherever it happened to be but yeah proper, proper parents <laughs> Yeah, they did. They did work on that. I mean, it's it's tough that you know we've been talking to a bunch of people, you know, and I always try and pull in a bit of the the development sort of stuff for whatever sport we're talking to, and you know that's that's great. Your parents did that, but it's it's hard. You know, that's a lot on parents to have to drive you know two and three times to get to something like Hardwood Hills, and you know you definitely see those kids that are around Hardwood, like I think have a huge advantage as far as development. Um, well, there's a if there's a hub for cycling in your area, I mean, you're instantly at an advantage, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm had a pretty like, you know, just solidly run of the middle, like middle-class upbringing kind of thing. So we, like my mom was able to drive me up there, but I think like throughout, like you alluded to like program management, national team stuff, I've always been very cognizant of like the cost of uh, participating in cycling and trying to keep that as low as possible. Cause there's so many hidden costs beyond like, um, just owning a bike and racing your bike. And, you know, one of those is like driving to bike races or your parents driving into a bike race. So, Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, that's, <laughs> I think we're facing, like when we started, there was, I, I think there was more people riding anyhow. I don't know. Maybe that's, some days I assume that we're just making that up. But I think, <laughs> I think there was more like, you know, those under 17, under 15, under 13. I think there was much bigger fields in mountain biking. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I I remember it being that way, but I, I feel like it ebbs and flows a little bit. Um, like I used to think that maybe Ontario Cup cross races were bigger, but then I, I saw on the weekend that um, like Vaughn set the record uh, 
and it was only like you know 270 riders or something that was just which is awesome i don't even know Uh, if it was 200 like it was yes the record but yeah it's not it's not giant numbers for that but no they always talk about the glory days in the 90s and mountain biking but i just don't know whether they were really that much bigger than they are now it's just that it was new it was exciting and you know when you're younger it just seems like a much everything just seems bigger yeah. yeah, it certainly depends on the, the race, I think. I mean, like, you'd be hard-pressed, like, when you go to a race like Iceman Cometh or Whiskey 50 or Paris to Ancaster, like, something where there's, like, you know, several thousand starters at an off-road event, like, that's huge. And I'm sure there was events in the 90s that were like that as well. Um, but I, sometimes you have to separate those, like, mass start events from, uh, you know, Olympic format cross-country racing, which I think, <clears throat> you know, ebbs and flows a little bit. For sure. Right. So what is, I, I don't want to go too far on the, like, getting kids going here, but it's sort of yeah. been on my plate a bit more lately. Like, do you feel like that establishing more hubs, like lower key sort of grassroots hubs is, is a place to spend money? Or, you know, if you had your, your thousand dollars, how would you spend it on getting more kids riding bikes? Or would you put that, in, like, maybe you'd just have a purse and make a Whiskey 50 event. I don't know. I think like the, the cycling world is like, you know, whether it's with people who own bike shops or whether they're coaches, like they're people that are like super enthusiastic about like spreading the gospel of bikes, but that's not necessarily one in the same with being like super organized about it. Mm-hmm. And um, you have to make it as simple as possible for the parents. Like, like minor hockey is really easy to understand. Like you put your kid in peewee, they have practice once a week, they have games on Saturdays. Um, the next age group they go up to is Bantam or whatever. And, and, and there's a, a logical <clears throat> sorry, progression of the uh, kind of the, the sport and how it works. But like cycling is really complicated. Like, you know, there's mountain biking, there's road. If you want to race mountain bike, maybe you got to race a little bit of road, but in the off season, there's cyclocross and you, know, you should probably also do that. You know, you belong to a club, but you can also belong to a team. And like, you know, there's different series and, and like, going after, you know, the Oak Cup or Canada Cup or maybe like a marathon series. And it's it's really very complicated. So I think like, like I've always looked to the whole, uh, <clears throat> and this isn't like a great example, but like NFL, how they structure their season where it's like going into week three, you know, Pete Glassford has the lead over, you know, mm-hmm. Molly Herford, but what will this week bring? And, um, and I know, and it's really easy to understand and get behind. And I think that's the biggest thing is clarity and like, creating that that system and those documents and that um, making it easy for parents to digest when they put their kid in the sport and feel comfortable about it. Because um, there's a lot of parents that ask a lot of questions and sometimes the answers are less than clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and the gear changes year to year, right? <laughs> like someone that had a bike from three years ago would be completely outdated now. Oh, totally. And like those, the kids grow like wildfire. Um, yeah. So they constantly want like, you know, the problem with these hubs sometimes is um, that, you know, everyone's trying to keep up with the Joneses and sometimes it just prices parents out of the equation. Because um, mm-hmm. you probably don't need a new bike every year um, unless you've grown out of it. But, you know, you can raise the seatbelts, you can put on a longer stem. There is some like, you know, some of that built into it. But kids aren't going to tell their parents that. And if no one tells their parents that, then they just think it's a really expensive sport that they have to buy their kid a new $2,000 bike every year. And that might be the end of it, right? So having even that information available to parents, you know, how often should you buy your kid new tires? How often should you get the bike tuned up? Like there doesn't seem to be a very good job of that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because even on the flip side, you're right. Like a lot of parents, you know, I think I rode the same set of tires for the first like three years I had a bike. It didn't even occur to me to get new ones, and they were pretty. Isn't rad. it awesome when you get new ones? Yes, yeah. she was quite excited. <laughs> yeah, that that is true. Scott did give us a wedding present of new tires. It's true. It's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So we have those on. Molly's skills have gone up a whole level. I don't think a whole level. Like, it'd be really no, hard for me to maybe go not. up a whole level. Maybe not. But um, so you're feel, you're feeling more confident and having more fun. Uh, today I was just pretty grumpy on slippery leaves. Yeah, it's pretty the muddy time, today. But. <laughs> so why did you stop racing? Like, why was that school? Was that sort of the transition, or did you, you know? get a, a, um, a lofty you know proposition from the national team to leave racing and start organizing or like what happened um i guess uh i just kind of like you know like racing to me was never like the be all end all like uh, you know i enjoy racing my bikes but i also enjoy traveling and i also enjoy hanging out with friends and like the the one thing you got to do to be a really good bike racer is to be able to focus on like racing bikes um and i certainly don't have that focus as it pertains to that. Like I enjoy riding my bike a lot, but I'm not willing to make sacrifices to race my bike, if that makes any sense. And, you know, there's that point where you hit, when you're like 21, 22, where you're like, hey, no, I'm probably not going to make a career. At mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was never, as I said, like a phenomenal bike racer. So um, I just kind of lucked into the whole mechanic thing, really. Um, <clears throat> and it went well, so. And that was that, was that true, true North that you went to right off the bat? Uh, like in terms of... Uh, like, like where was your first job? Like, or, or maybe not first, but when you were done racing and it got <clears> real, <throat> what did you do? Yeah. Well, in the university, I was working in a bike shop in Dundas. I went to McMaster and I was working in a bike shop in Dundas. And um, at that time, which was 2003, 2004, something like that, that's when uh, Road Worlds were held in Hamilton. Mm. And so... After Road Worlds, or around that time, there was like that, that, you know, that bike scene in Hamilton and the National Cycling Center had started and they had a bit of money and they were sending races everywhere. And I was working at the bike shop as a mechanic and I got an offer to go do um, the women's tour to PEI with the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to volunteer for it. You know, they, there was a smaller team, Advil Chapstick, and uh, they didn't have uh, a mechanic. So I volunteered and... Uh, they wanted me to do the Tour de Grand Montreal as well, but I remember I couldn't get the time off work. But my mom dropped me off. I, I got the GO train or something like that into Toronto, or I don't know what it was, but dropped me off at the bus station in downtown Toronto, and I, I bought a stand, and I had a little bag of tools. I didn't have like a proper you know, mechanics toolbox. And I took the, uh, the red-eye bus from Toronto to uh, Montreal, met up with the team, and then we took another bus with the whole organization from the Grand, Tour de Montreal to Tour de PI and uh, did the whole stage race. And that was kind of what kicked it off a little bit. And then after doing that, it kind of, you know, I, I guess got out there that I was going to, you know, available to work at bike races and I started working with the provincial team. So it was all very, like, organic, Um like just not saying no and to opportunities and then one opportunity leading into another opportunity. And I guess it was uh true North was I'd already started working for the national team and it was kind of like a, a part-time <clears throat> gig that became like a full-time gig and then became a part-time gig as I kind of started working more and more with the national team. Right. So, yeah. So then you started working, like eventually you became basically full-time with the <clears throat> national team. 
Um, yeah. And so what, what did that experience bring? You know, you were, you weren't just mechanicing there. Like you were basically booking stuff. Is that true? Well, I guess, sorry about my voice. I'm losing my voice. I don't talk that much on the phone. <laughs> um, so uh, I guess uh, 2008 is when I first started working with the national team and we went down to um, Uruguay, uh, to Montevideo, Uruguay and did uh, Pan Ams. And uh, that was super awesome. We did really well. The team was Dave, uh, Zach Bell and uh, Swain Tuft and team. I think we won like five races between the road race and the, uh, and the track races and whatnot. And then after that, um, they asked uh, Denise Kelly if she wanted to do um, the uh, Junior Worlds in uh, Cape Town, South Africa. And so Denise, who I worked with the provincial team and worked with, uh, with the, um, the uh, with that event, said, hey, Scott, do you want to do this? And I, I basically had to quit my job because they wouldn't give me the time off work. But I'm like, when am I ever going to go to South Africa? This is awesome. So we did that, but little did I know at that point in like I think Cycling Canada's history is they were cleaning house a little bit. And basically we finished up uh, Junior World. And as I remember it, like basically there was no one at the office to basically pay the bill for us to get out of South Africa. <laughs> so there was very little in the way of staff and they were at the point of building up again. Um, and as they built up in the, you know, 2009, 2010, 2011, they, there wasn't the staff at Cycling Canada that there was now. So you, you were forced to do a bunch of different things. And just me being me, I would just take on things. If I thought they could be done better, or if I thought I could help out in any way, I would just do it. And it was never, like, you know, in my job, job description per se. But, you know, organization and travel and that kind of stuff comes pretty easily to me. So if I can help out, um, if I think that, you know, the, this flight agent like could be doing a better job, I'll probably tell them, but more than likely I'll probably just do it instead. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where that came out. So by like you know, 2012, uh, I was doing you know, mountain bike, I was doing road, I was doing a bit of sponsorship stuff. I was kind of doing a little bit of everything um, up into uh, like the London Olympics. Okay. And do you feel like with going to all the Olympics and stuff, like, is, is that, have you learned anything from that, you know, as far as the organizational and, and sort of managing athletics, like has anything come out of that that you didn't have before just with the national team and provincial team? Maybe like just like not a, like a, I shouldn't say like not a respect for it, but like, like first and foremost, I'm into cycling and like the Olympics is a multi-sport discipline and it, it, a multi-sport event. And it, it's cool. But I think if you were asked like, you know, a road cyclist, like, would you rather win like Paris-Roubaix or the Tour de France or would you rather win the Olympic time trial gold? Like, I think a lot of people would say Paris-Roubaix or Tour de France. And to me, like the Olympics are, are awesome. And it's like the one time every four years that, you know, you can show your grandmother what you do and it's not just like racing bikes in a field somewhere. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was kind of cool because it like legitimized what I had chosen to do for a career. But like, honestly and truthfully, it was just another bike race to me and it was just another challenge. And like up until, and then through uh, for that matter, the actual bike race, it just felt like another bike race. The only time it ever really sunk in that I was at the Olympics was the, uh, the, um, the closing ceremonies, that was, that was really awesome. Like walking into the stadium with that many people mm -hmm. and like the fact that they would let the mechanics walk in with all the athletes, I thought was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'd done the Pan Am games the year before and I was the only mechanic for every discipline. 
And I was just so, you know, worked that entire time. It was at the end of the season. It was October. I'd already done mountain bike worlds and road worlds and, you know, probably spent 200 days on the road that year. Um, so, like, I was just so cooked that I didn't even get to appreciate the fact that that was a cool multi-sports games, uh, like, experience. Yeah. So the Olympics was a little bit fresher and it was a little bit more, it's quite the spectacle. It's really, really cool. Um, but to me, like first and foremost, I, I like going to world cups. I like going to the club, like to the, the races, like bike races more so than like, you know, big sports yeah. events, which are, you know, a little bit sport and a lot marketing. A lot more like McDonald's ads. Exactly. Yeah. So when you're there, I mean, at these big time events, you know, people's, I just watched, uh, what Mara, Mara Abbott, Mara, Mara Abbott. Mm-hmm. She did a Ted talk about her big Olympic, I guess, failure, but you know, her Ted talk was about coming to terms with, you know, can you commit yourself to something that you might fail at? Or, you know, are you going to just give your excuse the rest of your life type thing? So I thought it was a good mm-hmm. Ted talk, but, uh, you know, when you're there as a support staff or as a mechanic, you know, you're pretty, it's emotional. Like you, you know, you're there for the ups mm-hmm. and the downs, you know, have you had any of those experiences? You don't have to use people's names or anything, but um, you know, where you're, you've had to sort of interact with someone right in sort of that heat of the moment and sort of get them going again. Like, I mean, like, I think the, the best mechanics, um, I think there's a lot of very reactionary people in this world and I think that maybe the people that have the, the staying power in this sport is, t- in, is only like, um, as far as it relates to staff or maybe the people that are less reactionary. And I would maybe like put myself in the less reactionary pile. Um, like I certainly, you know, you do have interactions with athletes and like, I always like to liken the, uh, the relationship between an athlete and their mechanic, like a, a golf uh, golfer and their caddy. Right. Uh, to a certain extent, you're, you're definitely taking care of their equipment, but you're making recommendations about tire choices based on, you know, what you've seen that they've done well on the pa- in the past. And you're making recommendations on gearing. And again, you're, you're, you're a sounding board sometimes for, for they're, they're trying to talk out things and you're kind of providing a, a narrative to that. Mm-hmm. And, um, Certainly, I mean, you have to deal with, you get to, it's awesome when you get to deal with an athlete and they've had an amazing race and, you know, um, you know, good things have happened and you've been like toxic to their success, but certainly you also have to deal with athletes when they've had bad days and maybe, you know, something that you've done or not done is directly led to their, you know, bike not performing the way it should. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously you feel bad about that, but it's also Murphy's law. I mean, you can work on a bike as long as possible and it might, work well it might not work well and uh that's all there is to it um i don't necessarily think it's the mechanics role to like get an athlete up right uh to race or deal with an athlete when they've had a bad race but certainly you're your frontline staff so you're there so you have to deal with it um and every every mechanic and every athlete have a different relationship so certainly there's ones that just fix the bike and that's all there is and then there's certainly very close relationships between mechanics and athletes that kind of are almost in, in my mind, like, you know, more important than the relationship between a mechanic and their coach or a mechanic and the team manager or an um, athlete and their, you know, coach or whatever you want to say. Sure. So. Sure. Yeah. There's lots of different, different options there, but that's, I think that's a good answer. You know, it's, you know, I think even parents sometimes, you know, that description that you just gave isn't really that much different, but I think a lot of parents mm-hmm. are way too reactionary. Right. And, 
mm-hmm. I was there's another article actually I'll link to it as well, but it was in the I think the New York Times and it was about like champions versus like you know nearly champions or something like that was the wording and yeah and there that was one of the big things like there was variety in their upbringing and stuff, but also that like their support staff you know their parents weren't on the sidelines screaming at them and like you mm-hmm. know forcing them to go out and practice at home and stuff like they were there sort of as you talked about your parents right like they got the job done you wanted to bike they found a place that you know had you people for you to ride with and good coaching and you know they got you there but you know we we all know those parents that are just like screaming over the you know barriers at the athletes right and it's you can just say like you know there's just no way this is going to end well for anyone but like that maybe that one freak you know athlete that just is going to get there no matter what right i think like like no one can ever fault you for being supportive and i mean everyone's supportive in their own way but if you can like be supportive as a you know a coach or a mechanic or a parent or a friend and then through that support create the opportunity for the person to kind of like pursue their athletic endeavors i mean no one's ever going to fault you for that and generally, you know, if you overstep those boundaries, that's when you get into those issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think like, you know, just being that, that solid person that's there, that's supportive, um, you know, that that's what, I mean, everyone aspires to be. So, mm-hmm. so you travel a lot. Um, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you do that without being just completely blown all the time? Yeah. Like, you say you don't sleep, so I guess that's an asset, but, uh, but I definitely, road, I probably though. sleep too much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like what do you um, do? Like take us through. Like everyone's got their little travel hacks. Give us some takeaway here. Like what do, what does Scott Kelly do? He gets you know to the airport, gets dropped off. You know, what what happens? Um, I really enjoy travel. Like part of the reason why I do this job is because of the travel. Um, and uh, I think you have to enjoy. It. I, I meet mechanics or like staff every once in a while who are always like like bitching and moaning about being out on the road and you know whatever. And it's like. Well, you know, there's plenty of really good jobs at like bike shops where you could stay put if that's really what you enjoyed. But I really, really enjoy the travel. So I, I don't really have to like get myself up for it, if that makes any sense. Sure um, yeah. In terms of like, um, like hacks, I mean, it's just being organized, right? It's just uh, traveling as lightly as you can, having systems in place. I mean, I have a very wonderful girlfriend who drops me off at the airport, so I don't have to worry about parking my car. So that's, you know, job number one uh job number two is like you know that's your first tip (laughs) get support significant um and then just um you know being organized and uh i think travel like anything or even like you know sports it's just you do a lot of it and you get better at it right so i don't know if i've hit that like ten thousand hours of travel i probably have (laughs) um but uh definitely um purposeful practice if you will uh, uh yeah. just doing a lot of it and uh having a plan and uh every time you travel you learn something and then applying that to the next time you travel yeah. um i'm a really big fan of frequent flyer points <laughs> that helps yeah yeah so you're getting like priority line and priority baggage and then also access to the lounge and stuff right priority baggage is the big thing like um i get to travel a 370 pound bikes whenever I travel if I fly with Air Canada and I mean that saves the team a lot of money or it saves the national team a lot of money but it also means I don't have to like argue about whether my bike is 51 pounds or 50 pounds or whether it's a bike or just sporting equipment or whatever Mm -hmm. 
just really easy when, you know, companies like Air Canada or Air New Zealand, or I think even I heard that um, um, U.S. Airways or something like that's doing it now. Not U.S. Airways, the um, the other big one. I forgot. <laughs> There's United. There is not United. No, no. Who's the, the other? other one? Who's the one that uh, George Clooney Delta. flies with? Delta. No, not Delta. The other one. I don't know if that George Clooney movie is reality. America, American Airlines. It is reality. I live that reality. Okay. But um, Did just say American uh, Airlines. I feel like that was the first one you said. <laughs> um, yeah, it could. Be. It could be that one of that big American Airlines. American Airlines. I heard like just kind of rejig their flying with bikes policy. Yeah, I could be wrong, but. I mean, you think they'd want to encourage people to travel with equipment? So you think that they just re- they just reworked it? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to look into that. Might, that might be a completely unsubstantiated uh, statement. That's, that's fair enough. All right. Well, that's pretty good. I think being organized and sort of you know embracing it as practice and stuff is you know a, a good way to go with it. And trying to eliminate you know whatever makes you stressful. You know, okay, well they made you take your shoes off and your belt off and, you know, take your stuff out of your bag. Well, can you make, eliminate all those things or make them, you know, easier to remove or whatever? Right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. Uh, let's talk just a bit about your bike shop here. You know, you're, you, you, on the side here, you ha- actually have a brick and mortar building. You, you share this responsibility with a man named Chad, who's also done a lot of similar work more on the road and track side. Um, so, so why did you decide to open a brick and mortar building as someone who enjoys travel so much and has a job doing that? <laughs> so, uh, Chad, Chad G and I were in, uh, I think it was a world in Valkenburg in 2012. And we were both talking about how we kind of like, you know, did work on the side. Um, Chad and I go way, way back. And we were talking about how we do work on the side for, um, you know, people that knew what we did. So, you know, Chad would tune up bikes on the side for people that knew the national team mechanic or knew they worked for spider tech. And I was doing, you know, bike mechanics and bike fitting for people that knew that's what I did, but we didn't really have any kind of formalized thing. And we were both talking about like, you know, different, um, bike shops that kind of did that well, uh, Damon Shanks and Boulder and like different, setups like that and we're like you know what that makes a lot of sense with the way the industry is going like um everyone's buying stuff online and they just want someone to service their bike and give them good advice and so it kind of started out almost as like um and it was never like a part-time gig it became like really all-encompassing really quick um but we started out above uh, this uh coffee shop in dundas called domestique we had, uh, you know, the second and third floor, and the third floor was all storage, and the second floor we had a room dedicated to uh, bike fit and a room dedicated to mechanics and, like, a small presentation room. And then we kind of just grew a little bit from there. So now we have a, a kind of a cool, um, I don't want to call it, like, a loft-type space because we're on the main floor, but we got big high ceilings, and we're in an industrial, an old industrial mill, and uh, we're pretty busy. I was actually late calling you today because I was – yeah. busy is right at the end of the day and i kept on having customers show up well, so we, Canadians we, want to race cross all of a sudden yeah and we we still don't like stock bikes per se like we're a santa cruz dealer and we always have a size run of santa cruz's and you know we do moots and we do marinoni and we do felt but we're we're dealing with the customers who come in and they kind of know what they want or they want to have like an educated discussion about what it is they think they want and we try to help them the best we can. Um, but first and foremost, I mean, we do a lot of bike uh, tune-ups. We do a lot of wheel building, tubular gluing, um, suspension, bike fits, like all all sorts of fun stuff that maybe like a normal bike shop 
um, doesn't wade into as deeply. Right. No, I think it's a, a great thing. I mean, you've been open now for what, I guess you're coming up on five years then. So, I mean, yeah, that's pretty good. I think they always say three years is actually the, the key for most, a lot of businesses. So there you go. Mm-hmm. You're, you're good. everybody we're going to interrupt the podcast for just a second for a quick word from a new sponsor are you a consummate athlete i think so i think so too why don't you head over to healthiq.com slash consummate athlete help out the podcast and also check out your health iq in addition to being a health insurance company a life insurance company mm-hmm. health iq has a really great website they have really cool articles that they're posting all the time on their own blog and also just sort of their feed um, you know, I clicked on actually three or four while I was there, just interesting articles that popped up. So it might be a real great website to visit just on the regular anyhow, even if you don't want life insurance. Uh, that said, life insurance has been something that you and I have actually been talking about a ton recently. And the cool thing about Health IQ is they actually have special rates on life insurance for consummate athletes yeah they basically advocate for lower rates for healthy people you know your weightlifters your your runners your cyclists Um, high five yeah i guess high five if you're one of those people and so basically they're trying to leverage the fact that there's lower risk for cancer say 45 percent lower even 18 percent lower heart disease risk and 28 percent lower risk of early death for active people so that's great so why would you pay those higher rates you know that are taking those averages you know all those people who are you know, doing those unhealthy things. They're not out running, putting in the miles, you know, being healthy. Um, so, yeah, basically their idea is, that, you know, getting lower rates for life insurance, you know, which might fit into your sort of overall financial plan, uh, or it may not. But in any case, why don't you head over to healthiq.com slash consummate athlete. Again, help out the podcast. Check out some cool articles. Maybe take a few of their quizzes. I, I actually got two wrong on their weightlifting quiz. Wah, wah. So, uh, yeah, still a pretty good score, though. I think I beat 63 million Americans. So why don't you go to healthiq.com, see how many Americans you can beat. Um, it's weird. I apologize to the Americans. You could beat an American if you were an American. That happens. <laughs> so, I yeah. forgot you were Canadian. Healthiq.com slash consummate athlete. Thanks, guys. Now back to the podcast. Um, what else here? Again, for the sort of takeaways and stuff, what, you know, you, you, I alluded to in the opening, but the long-term development, uh, model or LTAD, long-term athlete development, uh, you, you added, you know, in this most recent redo we did here in Canada, you added some, or helped to contribute some mechanical skills that maybe we should be talking about with athletes. Um, do you just want to talk about like, you know, what are, what are you seeing? You know, right now we have a situation, I think, where we have a lot of these younger athletes are when they're good, you know, they're getting support and then maybe we're, we're missing out on some of that, like drive yourself to the race and, you know, figure out how to get your brake cables to not rub and, you know, race in one gear cause your gears are skipping and, and, you know, just figure it out. Um, you know, what did you add to that and sort of what is, do you have any opinions on that sort of what we should be teaching people in general? It doesn't even have to be juniors, but like what's lacking? Well, I think like, you know, the, the whole LTAD or podium pathway or whatever you want to call it, it, it it's pretty interesting actually because you like this, to do the LTAD properly, you kind of have to work 
backwards from what is it? it's that whole gold medal profiling thing, right? If you want to win a gold medal when you're 30, where do you need to be when you're 15? Where do you need to be when you're 10? And, you know, fortunately I was like brought into this conversation about like what the LTAD, LTAD should be. And they created this like really amazing document and it's, it's kind of boilerplate to a certain extent. And LTAD exists across every different uh, sport in Canada. And I think in order to have sport Canada money, or funding, they have to have this document. So I saw this document and uh, they asked for my opinion on it. And it was, you know, it was really, really well written, you know, like at age seven, you got to know how to do a bunny hop and at age, you know, 12, you got to know how to do this, but then it kind of like lost the plot and it, and it almost seemed like it was um, like, a, like a funding proposal document. If that makes any sense. It's like at age 19, must know how to use Normatech recovery boots. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But at no point in this document, it say like, learn how to fix a chain, learn how to wash your bike, learn how to like, like just very, very basic stuff that I feel like if you were like in a sport, like, um, like marksmanship or something like that, you would know how to like take care of your rifle. Like if you, uh, were in, you know, hockey, you would know how to tape your stick, like mm -hmm. just very, very basic stuff that I think if you have an appreciation of your equipment, you're going to have a better uh, idea of how to actually race that equipment. Yes. And so we sure. went through and, and added some kind of pretty basic stuff and uh, um, I guess uh, in, a, in an attempt to like just kind of jog people's kind of like memory that that is like something that's important to the sport. We do have this whole equipment side to it. Um, so I, I think certainly like, you know, you should be making time like to, you know, teach kids how to change their own flats or, you know, service their bike or, you know, even knowing how to work on your bike is going to like kind of, um, I guess, uh, make you a better rider. I, I would think, I, I don't know if you have an opinion on that. But. I mean, I think front shifting is like one of the best examples of that probably. I mean, maybe tire mm -hmm. pressure is good, but I mean, if you understand how a front shifter works, you know, and you've played with it in a stand when it's not been working and made it work, then you sort of understand mm -hmm. why you can't like just stay on the gas and like just completely hit it, you know? And so mm -hmm. when people have that classic, like your chain suck is because you're shifting poorly and then they say, oh no, you know, it's this bike, it's broken. And it's like, well, no, it's, it's not broken. It's a front. That's how a front shifter works. Like you just can't shift under load. Like that's how they work, you know, and it, it's like that classic mechanic versus athlete argument. But, you know, that's one of the things that like, if you understand how they work, then you immediately or not immediately, but you will figure out how to shift it. Right. And maybe, maybe that's like a good analogy for sport in that, like people are really bad about just blaming the bike on hole so it's like you know the bike didn't work today well what specifically didn't work well you know it couldn't shift well why couldn't you shift well because there was mud in the derail like and you get more finite and more finite mm -hmm. and people are, when you ask them about like you as a coach well how was your race oh, i had a bad race well what was bad about it oh i just you know i felt crappy mm -hmm. well can you be more specific well i just wasn't nailing those like you know technical sections okay like you know what what can we work on can we can we back that out and find a specific like skill that might next race improve that situation? Mm -hmm. And I think being able to break a bike, like think that way, like break a bike down into all its different components and make them all work well is, is what you have to do as a coach or what you have to do in sport is like, you know, you have to, you know, you have to have the endurance, you have to have the strength, you have to have the technical skills, you have to have like the mental savvy. And if you just think of yourself as, just an athlete and go fast and you know do well 
But if you can address those little symptoms, then I think you're going to be a better athlete because of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I well, no, I keep like, I mean, I keep coming back like at the end of the day, like we can just talk. I think the original LTAD didn't actually talk about skills either, mm-hmm. but we need to make sure that as coaches and parents and everything else, that the skills and the mechanical skills, you know, are, are being taught because I don't know how you go out and, you know, ride for hours and hours and hours without ever fixing a chain or a flat or, you know, all this stuff, lubing your chain. You know, I think what you end mm-hmm. up is like a totaled bike every couple months, you know, and, yeah. and then again, is that feeding into athletes not staying in the sport or failing in the sport when they would have otherwise done well or, you know, sponsors getting out of it because it's getting too expensive or whatever. I mean, we saw kids miss hundreds of miles at camp because of like really fairly minor. Yeah, bike just, issues. well, not minor, like worn out bikes essentially. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I think that maybe like the, 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 the thing that mind knocks maybe against the uh, the L- the LTAD or any of that podium pathways it's all very like like segmented if that makes any sense like so there's like the the group it's all very based on age right when you're 11 to 15 mm-hmm. or whether you're you know 15 to 19 and it's it's based on these chronological ages but it's not like you know we're a late recruitment sport. We get a lot of people that, you know, get into the sport at 16. So what happens if you missed all these early steps? Like, where do you start? Do you start at the very beginning or do you start midway through? Yeah. And yeah. can you go forward and go back? Like people, they, they, they move you into this development. Like, you know, you're a U23 mountain biker. You should be able to do this. Let's take you to world cups. But maybe that's not necessarily what you need at that time for your personal development. And the same with mechanics, it's like, you know, okay, just because you missed how to, you know, change a, a tube in your tire, does that mean that you just forget about that because that's stuff you should have known when you were 12? Well, well probably right. not. It's, 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 it's completely fair to go back and work on all this stuff on occasion. And I think that's my, my, my I don't know, knock, but commentary on the LTD, LTAD yeah. or the podium pathways. It's like, you know, once they age out of a different bracket, like don't give up on them. They're still good. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's still worth pursuing, hopefully, if you enjoy the sport, you know, from whatever age. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the L- <clears throat> that whole idea, and I mean, I don't even know if we need to use the term LTED, but the idea of mapping out a, a pathway, you know, is going to be general. And I think they added like years in the sport into this last one yeah. versus just age. Um, you know, and I think early on it's, you know, maybe makes more sense for, especially for some sports where it's like, you know, critical windows of development and stuff. Like you can only, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the time, the best time to, you know, develop certain things, but it doesn't mean like you say that you should necessarily get left behind or not consider people in a pool, um, you know, because of that or give up on learning how to bunny hop your bike a little higher throughout your career. Yeah. I guess my, my thing would be about the LTAD is like, and again, it's being asked to like kind of provide commentary on it and having that commentary kind of the, and that uh, the contributions that I made to it is like, like who implements the LTAD, right? Because like, I'm a really, really firm believer that there's like, you know, there's coaches and there's technical staff, but there's also senior athletes and they all have like a different uh, role to play in a young rider's development. And this whole coach-driven, athlete-centered kind of thing that we're going down right now takes the technical advisement out of it. It takes the uh, the senior athletes' 
kind of role modeling out of it to a certain extent. And it's just like you're looking at this document and you're like, okay, I'm a coach and you're 14, so today I'm going to teach you this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there's definitely improvements to be made there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were talking to a a rower today and just about, Mm -hmm. you know, just the importance of that group training environment and having other people around and always training with other people and different types of boats, you know, different numbers of people in the boats. Um, you know, and just how that is so like, you basically can't make it as a rower unless you're in that sort of situation. Um, and I think in cycling, you know, that's finding it to make it fun and sustainable, right? Like that's, I don't think it has to be at one centralized thing, but I think, you know, finding that group where, you know, again, as you say, we can have some senior athletes there sort of, you know, guiding the rides and making sure everyone's figuring out how to fix their flats and stuff. Right. Um, well, that that role modeling, like I, I think the sport that does it best, or like you know, sports that do it best are professional sports like hockey or like baseball, where they don't necessarily have, they're not really broken up by age. Like if you're a good eighteen year old, you're going to make it in the NHL. But if you are a thirty year old, but you have something to contribute to an AHL team or like a major league baseball team, like every every team needs that Bull Durham figure, right, to like mentor that younger hotshot coming up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like the biggest problem with the, the centralized training is it's it's targeted towards a certain age group of riders. So it's like, okay, if you're 18 to 24 and, uh, you know, have sufficient funding and you're from these provinces, okay, well, you can apply to be part of this, like, you know, centralized training group or next-gen group or whatever, and we're going to get you all together and the cream is going to rise to the top, right? Mm-hmm. But the the flip side of that is, like, you know, if you – like gather together a bunch of like 21 year old snot nosed kids. They could also go the other way, right? They could go to the lowest common denominator, right? So it's like sometimes you need that that older grizzled veteran or that mechanic or that that other um, kind of input mm-hmm. to provide development. And again, it's it, it, it's good uh, to have the LTADs and it's good to have the podium pathways and the gold medal profiles and all that kind of stuff. But it's also, um, you know, there's the school of hard knocks and they've been there and done that. And they certainly have, you know, things to say. Mm -hmm. And I think those inform opinions and inform, like, you know, like the progression of an athlete. And I think that's really, really important as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. I think, again, I think the LTAD is good in principle, but it's, it's such a hard thing to apply one document to so many different people and situations and budgets. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, yeah, it, it is what it is. So in, on that note of getting, you know, coaches, athletes, mechanics and stuff together, you've sort of been part of this cross coalition. I think this is the last thing we'll talk about here just quickly, but yeah. I want to bring it up because it is so, something that you've sort of head manned and I think is a, is a good idea. Are you, are you part of it this year? Or have you sort of got it set up and running now? No. So, um, well, I shouldn't say no, no. Yes, yes. Uh, um, part of uh, the Canadian Cyclocross Working Group. Uh, so I'm the the program manager for the group, um, and uh, it, it's a pretty awesome group. So a little background: um, I've been, I guess, r- running or helping run uh, cross world for the national team since Kentucky, um, and we every year we get together and we, you know, create this program and invite these athletes and we go to world and it would be all right. Um, but I don't think like 
going to world championships as a group does a national team make? I think it needs to be a little bit bigger than that. And there was, there's some issues that the, the community had at large with like, you know, the clarity of the documents and the programming and what, what were we doing and the, you know, the chargebacks, et cetera. So, I mean, credit goes to Chris Westwood at Cycling like Canada. He kind of gathered together a group of kind of concerned citizens, if you will. And, uh, created this this working group. So it's like myself and Aaron Schooler from the Focus team and Craig Ritchie from Easton and Michael Dick, national champion, Jason Gillespie, uh, Manitoba Cycling, on and on and on. Really, really good group of people uh, that basically were tasked with creating this this program. So, you know, the first thing was to um, improve the communication with the cross community at large. The second thing was to... Uh, kind of create a sustainable program to take kids over to Europe and uh, um, race bikes. Um, so uh, it's been going, this is the second year now, and uh, last year it went really well. We put the largest uh, team to Crossworlds that has ever been to Crossworlds in Europe, so that was good. Um, and we also did our first kind of Christmas camp, so it took a bunch of kids over to race in Belgium over Christmas, and um that went really, really well, actually. And those kids, a lot of those kids who spent that time over for Christmas and for Worlds are just, like, killing it on their cross bike now. They're doing really, really well. Uh, last year, I mean, I was just hoping to get a kid in the top 10 of the UCI junior race, and now they're contending for the win, and they're on the podium. So that's, that's, that's really awesome. So the biggest obstacle we always face is, you know, funding. Cyclocross doesn't receive any funding from uh, Cycling Canada because it's not an Olympic sport. And right. so... Cycling Canada doesn't receive any funding for it from On the Podium or um, Sport Canada. So that that's fine. So we, we independently fundraise. And I'm, pre- I'm pretty proud of what we've done. I mean, kids went to World last year for $899, which is one symbolic dollar less than it costs to go to Mountain Bike Worlds. So we're a fully funded sport. <laughs> Fair enough. I like it. Um, <laughs> is is the link easy for the fundraising, or can I bug you for that? And we'll put that in the notes too when they go out. Well, and this should go out before. Yeah, I think probably when yeah. when's major fundraising? Like end of November. We're we're always fundraising. Like we'll have a pretty good idea of who the team is after nationals, but obviously, um, uh, we're always kind of looking for people to help out. A uh, big initiative this year is actually we. Um, we talked to uh, an online registration uh, program, from, uh, CCN, and um, any um, organizer who wants to contact CCN, they can actually add a little button to their registration uh, um, website that basically says, you know, donate five, ten, fifteen dollars to the, the national team. So that's been that's been huge. Having you, know, you can register for you know like Ontario Provincials or the one of the Vancouver Cross Coalition races, and uh, you know when you pay your thirty bucks to enter the race, you can back on five dollars to support the program That's and awesome. that goes totally to the uh, the national team and offsetting costs to bring those kids over to the world wow so you've you've already got that in place like people are already mm-hmm. able to do this yep. okay well, that's good. That's a good move on CCN's part. That's that's solid. No, they've been they've been really really supportive uh, of the program and making that. It was really easy to get that whole kind of initiative started. So uh, kudos to them and kudos to actually uh, the uh, the Ontario provincial organizer John. He kind of spearheaded that initiative and it's gone really really well. 
Okay. Awesome, Scott. So, I mean, thank you for taking this time. I'm going to encourage everyone to get into Dundas, you know, go over, bug Scott late in the day, um, but make sure you bring him some sort of beverage um, late in the day. And he's at the Dundas Speed Shop. We'll put all the links and addresses and phone numbers so you can phone Scott because he loves talking on the phone. Um, <laughs> Scott, did you want to leave us with anything? Like, how, how could someone follow your footsteps? What's, what's your sort of one Twitter advice here that someone could, you know, if they, you know, maybe get into the end of their career or just like cycling? You know, how could they follow your footsteps here, getting into that sort of support role, you know, do all this travel and stuff? I think the biggest thing is just to go out there and do a lot of it. Like, it's a very, very small community. So, like, I I know all the people in Canada who fix bikes at bike races. And, you know, when I'm thinking of what staff I can bring to Crossworlds and maybe, like, what, you know, part-time mechanic we need for this event or that project or that team, it's like people pop to mind and there's always, like, an event that makes sense. Um, so if you get out there and <clears throat> support your, your provincial team or support your local club, I mean, chances are you're going to meet someone and that's going to become something. And again, it's, it's all organic growth. You're, you're the sum of your experiences and uh, of the people you meet. And there's always really, really cool opportunities. So it's just, you know, saying yes to them. Right. Well, I'm going to leave you with, you make sure you bug me about helping out you guys uh, over at the Christmas cross. We're over there. We can talk dates and stuff, but uh, yeah, Absolutely. again, I'll, I'll offer my services, if nothing else, just to bug the mechanics and entertain them in the pit <laughs> while they do actual work. Coffee runner. Yeah. The coffee and fruit. I think that was my job last year was getting frites for the mechanics. Mm, and was a, you did a great job. Good. I'll take that as a recommendation for future freight acquisitions. I'm pretty impressed because normally if I asked for freights, he'd come back with a potato. Yeah. (laughs) Molly doesn't get freights, but the mechanics get freights. They run on them. That and candy. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We would love it if you'd go over to iTunes and leave us a review. And if you have any ideas or people you'd love to see on the podcast, feel free to tweet at us at Peter Glassford and at Molly J. Herford or find us over at consummateathlete.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Just a reminder to head over to healthiq.com slash consummateathlete to get your life insurance quote and find out how active people can get a good rate on their life insurance.